This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking what France's violent protests mean for Macron. We'll also be discussing the decline and fall of urban America. And finally, we'll be exploring the implications of AI voice cloning technology. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, journalist Jonathan Miller argues that President Macron is pitting himself against the people as he refuses to back down from his plans to raise the age of retirement. He joins us now, along with the regular coffeehouse contributor, Gavin Mortimer. Jonathan, could you start by briefly explaining for our listeners why the people of France are taking to the streets once again, and in such large numbers? A brief overview. That's a really good one. I mean, I think you need to go back a few hundred years <laughs> to understand why, why the French have this predilection for taking to the streets. But the proximate cause of this particular row is Macron's ambition to reform the retirement age in France, uh, which is very generous and which is not really sustainable in a country that owes three trillion euros. Nevertheless, he's not a particularly well-loved guy. He uh, was re-elected president last year, but with a narrower majority than in his first election. And then the National Assembly, which is the French parliament, he failed to get a majority in the assembly, which means that the assembly is now rebellious and refused to pass this retirement reform, following which there was a vote of confidence in the government, which it narrowly, narrowly won. And the government imposed this reform by decree, which is a peculiar constitutional privilege they have, and people are furious and have taken to the streets. And you have the usual, uh, the unions, the syndicats, who uh, represent uh, some of the most privileged workers in France. You have this extreme left-wing troublemaking faction that comes out and attaches itself to every passing demo, often with violent consequences. You have the kind of... Uh, high school and university students who've joined in the demonstration out of a a sense of solidarity. And then you have the police whose role in this is to be abused by more or less everybody until they finally lose patience. And then you had, of course, the stars of this show, I think the rats of Paris who have profited by uh, the strike of the garbage collectors and have been eating better probably than ever. Gavin would know more about that than I would. Well, I'm one of the fortunate ones, Tim, because in fact, the the bin strike, which is now over, but it it only affected certain arrondissements. And as luck would have it, it was the poshest ones. So uh, where I live uh, in the south of the city, our bins were collected as normal. So I haven't seen many cat-sized rats, but I, I hear they are out and about, as Jonathan said. I presume the rats hang out at the uh, 
the uh, the restaurants étoilé by Michelin to assure <laughs> to assure that they're getting the best nourishment. It's kind of Ratatouille's revenge. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Gavin, you've been writing about the protests for our website, Coffee House. I wonder what what have you encountered going along to some of these protests? I mean, what what have you uh, what have you sensed in in reporting it for us? Well, just I mean, firstly, just to pick up on a point that uh, Jonathan made, which I think goes to the heart of this. We're talking about the election last year. In the first round of the election, only about nine and a half million people voted for Macron, whereas you had twenty million voted combined for Le Pen, uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon of the far left, Zimmer for far right. I mean, Jadot, the, the Green candidate. Uh, and then in the second round, Macron beat Marine Le Pen by 18 million to 13 million. But roughly half of that number voted for Macron because they didn't want Le Pen. So Macron's voter base is about 9 million. And then if you bear in mind that 45 million people in, in France are eligible to vote, one in five voted for Macron. And so there's an awful lot of people, the majority didn't vote for Macron. And Macron over the years has denigrated the France, insulted them, mocked them, called them slackers, resistant to change, people who are nothing. He seems as though he's gone out of his way to antagonise them. And I think what we're seeing now is the, the culmination of this bubbling anger. We saw it in the yellow vests that was quashed by fairly robust policing. And also, as Jonathan mentioned, that, you know, this left, this far left violent mob that just like a leech clamps on to any uh, vaguely left wing demonstration and turns it violent. And of course, that's what they did last week. I went to the demonstration through Paris on Tuesday, which was overwhelmingly peaceful uh, until the end. And you can see these thugs slowly infiltrate the the cortege as it moves as it moved up the uh, boulevard voltaire from place de la uh, republique to place de la nation which is about two miles long it's a, a long walk it's very well controlled by the police i mean it was only about halfway up that the atmosphere which had been festive slowly began to change as these uh, hoodlums arrived and sure enough a couple of hours later uh, i switched on my news and there was tear gas everywhere things being thrown, baton charges, it was all wonderfully French. But I think it's it's just this feeling of anger from both the left and the right. And uh, they think that they haven't got a democratic voice, so the only way to get their point across is in the street. Jonathan, you say in your piece that Macron is actually right about retirement age in the sense that France's economy cannot sustain this sort of early pensions you know, indefinitely. Do you think that there's a sense that Macron might be martyring himself over this issue? I mean, given that he's in his second term anyway, do you think that he thinks he can say that he was the president who held firm and pushed through what the country needed economically? Well, Macron, when he was elected on the first go, spoke a great game about the reform of, of France. And I think he was and always has been right that France has not really had the kind of structural reforms. It has the the things like the Code de Travail, the working code, which is like 4,000 pages long with all these rules which make it hard to hire people, with all these costs and taxes which makes the country inefficient, with not a single company that's in, 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 the, in the global 
tech premier division. There's no French Google, there's no French Facebook, there's no French Twitter. And the country has uh, this tradition of, of the French model, which has been very cosseting, and it's become increasingly unaffordable. And Macron said he was going to change that. Well, in fact, his efforts to change these things ran aground for the first reason that he has not a, a personality that's persuasive or inspiring. He's simply been incapable of explaining to people why things need to change. And now we're back again, second helping. And he again, he's elected in his manifesto. He says he's going to reform the pension system. So he, he's claiming a mandate. But on the other hand, this mandate is extremely attenuated. He didn't get this majority in parliament. He appears on television wearing a very expensive wristwatch, which he then tries to hide, which is kind of a, a Marie Antoinette moment. It's almost as if he's got a sort of a Marie Antoinette character, you know, where, where his aide comes and says that people have no diesel fuel, and he says, let them buy Teslas. Well, that's fine for people who can spend 70,000 euros on an electric car, but he just seems out of touch, and he's not a great leader, and he's actually not even that, I'm not sure he's that interested in it. I think his real interest is in being an international statesman and he wants to lead the EU and now that Merkel's gone he reckons you know he can step up to this but his domestic weakness and problems are handicapping him making him less viable and then I think this it's become almost humiliating the inability to receive King Charles. It's quite, it's quite a, uh, quite an admission, isn't it? You're, you're, sen you're essentially admitting that um, it's not safe for a head of state to meet uh, another head of state in his own country. Well, that's a. I think it's humiliating, and I think the other problem that it that it raises. This is a subject that I'm extremely interested in. We'll be trying to follow up more. Is in just over a year, the French are going to open the doors to the world and and, and have the 2024 Olympic Games. And I'm hearing, and I'm sure Gavin will be hearing whispers of this too, that there are people at a very, very senior level in the French security apparatus who are very, very worried about the security of these Olympics, where millions of people will be coming. There's an awful lot of people ready to cause trouble. There are terrorist groups who regard France as a primary target. And the French have shown, as they did last May at the Stade de France, when Liverpool came and their fans were beaten up first by the local thieves and then attacked by the police, the French have shown they're not really very good at, at this. So uh, this is a big worry. And this was, of course, Macron's big 2024 photo opportunity, which is going, you know, is, is threatened, in a, you know, now. So we shall see. Just continuing with the Olympics, I think in, in private, the... Um, the, the French administration, the last thing they need are the Olympic Games, which without fail run hugely over budget. Paris is a city that is already ailing. Anyone who's been there will know it's pretty dirty and broken up. The Parisians are constantly moaning about this and that, and that the infrastructure is, is, has been deteriorating for a, for a number of years. Um, I think that's absolutely the, the security risk is huge. There was a big piece in a in a current affairs magazine a couple of months ago from a Franco-Iranian writer, very well connected in the Middle East, who said that uh, Islamic State 
a regrouping and uh, they're looking to, to pull off a spectacular, as they put it, in Europe. France remains their number one target. Um, there will be nothing more spectacular than the Olympic Games. So this is an added problem uh, for Macron. And, and also just something else. We shouldn't forget, of course, that Macron is a very inexperienced politician. He sold himself as this wise statesman. But of course, he, he really only went into politics in 2012 as a, a junior advisor to Hollande and then quickly worked his way up. But he's, he's never exposed himself to something like PMQs. He hasn't grown up in, that, in the far more robustuous um, British politics. And so I think we're seeing that now, that this callowness of Macron is, is, is one of the reasons why he seems to be unable to control France. I think that's absolutely right, Gavin. I think he is not really an an adept politician. He became kind of president sort of by accident, and he was never elected yeah. so much as a a mayor or a, a, a conseil municipal, a, 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 a councilman, before he was elected president. He's he's got a very very high opinion of his own intellect, and it's true. The guy is very smart. I mean, he just doesn't seem to have the ability to do what politicians should be able to do, which is seduce people and make them think that he's on their side. Instead, he seems to do the opposite. He repels people. He puts them off. He talks incessantly. He's full of these grandiose schemes, few of which ever go anywhere. He's got these enormous ambitions. The conclusion of my piece today is he has had one and singularly one great success, which he has united France against him. Final question, who do you think's the big winner out of out of Macron's rapid unpopularity? Who who uh, out of the French politicians do you think will will benefit greatest? Well, yeah, that's a good question and Jonathan touches uh, on that in his piece that the polls would say would suggest that Marine Le Pen is the winner because she's her opposition is parliamentary in in the National Assembly and uh, none of her 89 MPs have taken part in the street protests. But of course, as Jonathan says, you know, economically, she's she's very left wing and it's pretty unsustainable, much of her economic manifesto. Um, and, the, and the name will j- is still just r- rules her out for a great swathe of the toxic, population. And, you know, I think she's played it very well though, in the last few weeks. She's she's kind of hasn't descended to the left wing uh, rabble rouser Jean-Luc Mélenchon's uh, Re- excitable rhetoric. She's played much more of a statesman-like game, but politically, she is a you know this paradox of a really quite left-wing. Her, her her economic politics are not particularly distinguishable from that of of the French left. Whereas at the same time, this tradition of nationalism, and you know the combination of socialism and nationalism it doesn't trip easily off the tongue i don't think she's a fascist i don't think she's as extreme as people make her out to be but she does come with a toxic name and she does seem to be the big winner as gavin says and i don't actually i mean one of the depressing points here is i i'm not seeing you know the prince over the water uh i don't know what they can do who there is out there there's uh Edouard Philippe, I suppose, who was prime minister before, but was pushed out by Macron for being a bit too popular. On the left, the socialists have 
nobody. I think, you know, Mélenchon is, is as toxic as Le Pen. So it's a, it's a, a, a very, very uh, rough period ahead of, in, in France and, and, and quite depressing. Thank you, Jonathan and Gavin. Next up, in his piece for the magazine this week, the travel journalist Sean Thomas says that in comparison to other cities he's visited, American cities are uniquely struggling to bounce back from the impacts of the COVID pandemic. Sean joins us now alongside Carol Markovich, a columnist at the New York Post and a contributing editor at Spectator World. Sean, in your piece this week, you talk about a whole host of places you've been in the last couple of years, but you focus on America and you say the cities there seem to be struggling the most. Why do you think that is? Well, I went to a bunch of American cities, but there are three in particular which stand out because they represent three of the different problems that I think are facing urban America. I chose New Orleans, Los Angeles and Denver, Colorado. The reason I chose uh, New Orleans, which a city I love, by the way, and I mean, I've been going 20 years and it's great, is the really, really awful crime problem there now. I was astonished to find that it has the eighth highest murder rate in the world per capita in a city, worse than anywhere in Africa. And the only cities ahead of it are all embroiled in the drug wars in Mexico. I mean, that's an astonishing statistic for New Orleans, a tourist city which needs visitors. Uh, Los Angeles, I mean, they've all got multiple problems which interlink and, and braid. But in LA, I focused on the, the, the homeless drug problem, which has exploded, particularly post-COVID, and for other reasons. But there are now 70,000 homeless people in LA. Five homeless people die every day in LA. And fentanyl is everywhere. And it's driving people away from the city. People are being driven away from the third city, Denver, Colorado, for a di- kind of different reason. It's because Americans are still working from home more than, I think, anywhere else on Earth. You know, they're very attached to their cars. They already live quite a suburban life, more than most countries. So the, the emptying of downtowns, which was a worldwide phenomenon, is really persisting in, in America in a very deleterious way, I think. And Carol, that's a pessimistic picture, I, I suppose, that Sean um, paints about the decline of these American cities. Uh, have you noticed a similar phenomenon or do you think uh, Sean might be being uh, a bit pessimistic? No, absolutely. Even the cities that don't have, let's say, the suburban sprawl of Denver, um, New York City, where I'm from, they still have not returned to full time office work. And to me, the reasons are really based in politics, that if you took COVID, quote unquote, seriously, and if you still take COVID seriously today, then you are on the left. And you show that by saying it's still not safe to go into the office full time. And so it really establishes the parameters of what you are allowed to believe politically based on what you believe about COVID. Hmm. So, Carol, you wrote a piece for The Spectator World edition about the sort of movement of Americans into into Florida. So right. the when people are leaving these cities that, that Sean describes in his piece, such as in, in New York, is is it Florida? Is, what, is that the main place they're going? Are they also going to other places like Texas and so on? Or is it... Is it uh... well, so what I immediately noticed about Sean's piece is I think if you went to Miami, it's, it's really a different type of city experience right now. That doesn't mean that Miami doesn't have homelessness or doesn't have crime. It does. But there's an active battle against it. That's really what the issue is to me. I grew up in Brooklyn in the 1980s. I grew up in a really rough neighborhood. But 
we didn't have to convince people that crime was bad or that we should stop homelessness. Now it's like you can't get to step one in these cities where you can't get them to admit that you want that, that crime is bad or that homelessness is something you want to stop. And I think in places like Miami, which again, still have their issues, at least you get to that first step of like, we don't want crime and homelessness in our city. In places like Denver and places like Los Angeles, which by the way, you mentioned in the piece, Sean, that you have no love for Los Angeles. But for me, LA was always like my second favorite city. Our plan B, if something happened to New York, was to go to LA. You know, we just didn't foresee that LA would collapse so much faster than New York. It is shocking. Can I just say that actually there, there was one city I, I went to, which I thought was doing really well, which is Nashville, Tennessee, um, which is experiencing a boom. People are coming in from New York and Los yeah. Angeles and Tennessee. Tennessee in general is doing quite well, I think. But Nashville, I said, mm-hmm. we've got too many people coming in. And you can see it. The downtown is, is, is really busy. There are buildings going up. So it isn't universal across America. But, right. it, but it's these towns further south are doing better. Yeah. Well, people are escaping to cities in red states like Nashville and Miami. And these cities are Miami voted uh, Republican for the first time in, you know, decades recently. And they're a different model of a city where, again, the policies aren't coming from the hard left where you can't even admit there's a problem. And Sean, what do you think it means for America if many of its cities are in terminal decline? I, I suppose a lot of people would associate the kind of iconic American city with a lot of America's growth over the last hundred years. I know, that's an enormous question. And I think, and I, I don't really have an answer because it, it's never really happened before, I don't think, that, that such a powerful and important country could see such a widespread decline in its major urban centres. I mean, I suppose you'd have to go back to the Roman Empire or something, but that's not a very hopeful example. But um, I'm sorry, but I don't have any answer. I think each problem has to be solved individually, and then you'll solve them all. But how do you solve a problem like like fentanyl and drugs, which are so addictive and... Well, Carol, perhaps I might then ask the same question to you. What what, what do you think it means for America? Well... It's not a good sign for sure. But again, I I think that it's solvable. You're right. The fentanyl is a new hurdle. Um, But growing up in New York City in the 80s and into the 90s, we had crack and we had high crime and so many issues. And then they were basically solved. And then the problem was that the way that they were solved the left did not appreciate that. And so they decided to come up with new ideas and how, how to fight these issues that had already been cha- you know, conquered. There's so many things. And you know, when we look at these cities decline, there's so many things that we don't even get into here. But like the idea, for example, of equity in schools has pushed so many people I know out of New York City. So they were willing to deal with the crime and they were willing to deal with the homelessness and they were willing to deal with the COVID restrictions. But then their, their, their kids' school took away merit and rigor and they decided, no, we, we can't deal with this anymore. So there's so many little factors uh, where politics have played such a giant role in pushing people out. But New York was a model and you know, having my kids... I have uh, kids who are 13, 10, and 7, we were planning to raise them in Brooklyn. We, pre-pandemic, things were going so well in New York City that we were absolutely thinking that this was going to be where we spent our lives with our children. And then the pandemic hit and it exposed so many things. And 
you didn't need good politics in New York as long as things were going well. But as soon as they weren't going well, all the bad politics were exposed. Well, so you've, Carol, you've talked about how the uh, pandemic response from from different cities and the, the way different cities uh, responded to the pandemic is responsible for a lot of the, 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 the movement to and from uh, these various places. I wonder then, going back to Florida... Uh, mm-hmm. And Governor Ron DeSantis, who obviously has his the way that he dealt with with COVID in Florida, has has kind of propelled him to the front line of American politics. Do you think that his success in Florida and 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 you know getting people to to come to the state can that success be translated to a successful presidential run? Um, yes, absolutely. I, I think that he has a great shot at making a very serious run. Um, I think that. His success over the last, you know, term and a half of his, not even half yet, he just got reelected, but his last term was extremely successful. He put Florida on the map in a brand new way. Our family had never considered Florida as a place to live. We didn't even ever thought about it. And then suddenly it became like this beacon of sanity where as things were going crazy in New York City and so many other places, people saw Florida and, and its many cities as a destination where we could go and and be free from the COVID insanity, but also have a really normal life where our kids can, I I didn't have to worry as much about my children here because so many things about Florida just fostered a normalcy that had gone away from New York and other places like it. But um, but, but DeSantis has to beat Trump, doesn't he? That's a big hurdle. It's, it's, and and I you know I hope that none of the people that support DeSantis are taking that lightly because that that is a big one. Donald Trump has a lot of things going for him in the Republican primary. I mean, one of the top ones is name recognition is pretty much one hundred percent, and the people know him. Whether that's good or bad, you know, remains to be seen. But also, what's interesting is a lot of the polls right now are national polls. We don't have national elections in the U.S. We have state by state elections. So it's really if you're looking at what's happening in this race, I would urge everybody to look at sort of the early states and see what the matchup looks like there. Thank you, Sean and Carol. And finally, beware of the voice thieves. Mary Wakefield writes in the magazine this week about her fear of the advances in artificial intelligence and in particular voice cloning technology. This sort of tech is being increasingly used by fraudsters and was the second most common con trick in America last year. Do you think he would be fooled by a voice scam? Perhaps so. The voice you just heard was a clone of Will's voice achieved by uploading 20 minutes of audio to an online software. And the results suggest that Will and I might be out of a job fairly soon. Yes, but until then, we're joined now by James Ball, columnist at The New European, and Jay Hack, an AI practitioner who is formerly CEO of Mira AI. For the first question, we thought it would be fun to test how convincing the clone version of my voice really is. Let's get going then. James, to start with, Mary writes in our magazine this week about the concerning rate of progress when it comes to AI, and in particular the implications of voice cloning technology. She tells the story of her friend being scammed by someone who had cloned her son's voice. What did you make of that? Do you share her concern? I think you'd be insane not to share her concern. There's quite a lot of these scams. There's, um, I mean, I've I've been targeted by ones that text you going, Mom, I've lost my phone, which did make me wonder which of my friends had me saved in their phone as mom. Um, but voice is obviously far, far more convincing than text. Now, as Mary's piece said, the piece sort of quite quickly 
the sort of the voice quickly lost convincingness when it didn't really know very much about her son and couldn't really answer questions etc so once once a bit of suspicions there everything changes but i think until we get the awareness that it's increasingly easy to fake voices i think we're going to see an interesting period i think there'll be a couple of years where these are quite risky and then people will sort of know what's possible and it'll calm down again. But it is impressive that I've I've seen demos where you can play a minute of someone's voices about the time I've spoken now, and it can do quite a convincing facsimile. Speaking of convincing, James, you may be interested to know that that first question was not me asking it. <laughs> that was a that was a <laughs> that was a voice so, deep fake that we we made in advance to see if it would work, and it, it seems to have passed the first test. It, it did. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you work in the field of AI, and on your Twitter feed, whilst you often are marvelling at the progress of AI, it's also fair to say you're fairly cautious about its impacts. Can you take us through your own understanding of where we're at at the moment with AI and where it might go in the coming year or so? Sure. I think what we end up seeing a lot of the time, uh, especially the things that end up getting circulated online, are just the very top, maybe 5% of the output. So if you were to take some of this voice software and try and create an output, it's not going to sound as good as like the Kanye West, you know, rapping over some type of child uh, nursery rhyme or something along those lines that, you know, a, a large percent of the outputs end up being something that's not actually that good. That being said, it's very easy to see there's a clear line of sight towards these things being incredibly good and, and even resolving a lot of the issues that uh, James called out a second ago, where I think there's a very good reason to be concerned about the usage of these in things like hacking contexts um, or people using it to somehow mislead other people. And I think it's probably the case that, you know, we it's sort of a one-way door. It's, it's not as though we're going to be able to bring this technology back and make it worse. And so over time, uh, I personally and a bunch of other people in the community expect to see it enter a situation or a reality where it's impossible to know when you're looking at a video, whether it's actually true or it's a deepfake. And I think that's going to mean that we're going to have a, a sort of realignment in terms of the assumptions we make when we see content online. So, so James, the, the, all of this does sound perhaps a little bit worrying, but can you see ways in which voice cloning software or other type of uh, deep fake technology could be used for, for good <laughs> rather than just for sort of scamming? I mean, there's there's definitely uses for good. I mean, one thing we should remember is you don't need sophisticated fakes to trick people. If I make up a quote from you, put it next to a picture of you on an image on social, you know, and it's inflammatory enough, people will share it. People get scammed by all sorts of idiotic things all the time. It doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about more sophisticated ones, but... We should remember, you know, it would be a nice world if the biggest thing we had to worry about was deepfakes. There are some really exciting uses for proper sort of real-time synthesized voice, especially that sounds like a particular person. I mean, you could start to think of some quite creepy Black Mirror type stuff about when people are gone and digital ghosts, but let's sort of steer away from that and look at you know, people who have synthesized voices could end up with hyper-realistic voices, or especially if people are losing their ability to speak through a degenerative condition, they could actually keep up what their real voice was with whatever technological aids they use. 
I think another really exciting thing is you could have real-time translation that actually keeps the qualities of your voice. That's quite a cool thing. That's probably not too far away. You know, as Jay said, the tech's not there yet, but but it's there. There are a lot of good uses for this. I mean, you could, I mean, one of the, I don't know whether this counts as good or bad, but you could have fairly soon sort of AI generated cartoons, including AI generated voiceover, which could fairly quickly put both animators and voice actors out <laughs> yeah. of work for at the low end of the market. And, you know, a little bit like handmade is now premium with baking, you know, human made becomes premium with art. We are heading to a fairly major technological break, I think. And Jay, fairly recently, there's been this open letter written by various people in the world of tech calling for a pause in the progress of artificial intelligence. What do you make of that? And is there anything that can really be done to pause this progress? Sure. I think there are very real concerns that are coming from some very senior people on this topic. It ends up being the case that if you observe some of the latest large language models, specifically, speech is a little bit different, but uh, for instance, GPT-4, which is something that came out from OpenAI pretty recently, it can do some surprisingly nefarious stuff. It demonstrates the ability to go out into the world and download software and start running that software in order to hack networks. It can do stuff like, you know, impersonate people. It can even, uh, there's one example that I think is great where a person said uh, to GPT-4, I want you to make as much money as possible within a week. And it decided to set up an e-commerce store and then it gave instructions for him to go purchase things from another place and start dropshipping them, et cetera. And so we're in a state right now where we don't really know what the boundaries are of what these things are going to be capable of. And the rate of progress is astounding. It's really concerning, to be honest. So there's certainly, you know, a case, a very large case, and I think many people, including myself, uh, believe in this, that there's going to be, you know, massive positivity associated with the development of artificial intelligence in the future. But it is, you know, simply the case as well that we don't know what it's capable of doing on the downside. And I think it's worth, uh, you know, a sort of as a society taking a pause saying we want, we need some type of better guarantee that we are not going to be introducing some type of, uh, you know, nefarious agent into the world that's going to end up nuking our society or doing something very negative like that. And James, do you do you worry at all about the military or perhaps weaponized capacities of of AI? You know, if if countries such as Russia or perhaps China uh, develop sophisticated AI programs, could we see a scenario in which, in which, yes, we have a sort of militarization of, of AI in a kind of bit of an arms race, I suppose. I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, when you look at targeting systems or a lot of weapon systems now that are far far more of the calculation and the work is done by the technology than by the human already, the sort of general principles are a bit more advanced there. It's sort of AI assists decision making, but humans do the targeting. You could do a very optimistic side where the better the technology for avoiding civilian deaths, et cetera, you might actually get it to be more restrained. In the case of, say, the US military, some of the calls made made by humans with the current tech assessment. I think, you know, AI is a tool. It's it's the classic thing of, you know, you can use a hammer to stove someone's head in or to build a shelter. We're going to discover that. I think where we really need to make the AI sort of tech generation better than the last one is we can't, as we have with social media, we've gone 20 years and we still don't really have any meaningful 
regulatory framework, certainly not internationally. We can't sit and let regulation be 20 years behind the tech on AI. It's too seismic. It's too important. And I don't think calls for global moratoria are realistic or meaningful. I think calls for much faster action, even if it's stopgap measures, I think are better. You know, I don't think you try and stop it, stop the sort of course of the river. I think you try and make it flow where you want it to. Thank you, James and Jay. And that is everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've talked about. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.